0: If Einstein is right, if general relativity is correct, then the yes. universe is expanding, yes? Yes. Okay, so if you reverse time, then the universe is getting smaller. All right. So, what if I reverse the process all the way back to see what happened at the beginning of time itself?
1: At the beginning of time itself? Yes.
0: So the universe getting smaller and smaller,
2: getting denser and denser, hotter and hotter you as mean
1: we- wind back the clock?
2: Yeah, exactly. Wind back the clock.
1: Wind back the clock.
2: Is that what you're doing?
0: You're <laughs> winding back the clock. That is what I'm doing. <laughs> well, keep winding. I know. And you've got quite a long way to go. Keep winding. I don't want to fall in. Well, you've got to go back to the beginning of time. we have got a long way to go. I'll well, keep winding. Keep winding. <laughs> until you get...
3: ...a singularity. A space-time singularity. It's like a universe born from a black hole exploding. Keep going the universe began. No, 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 no. Keep going, develop the mathematics. Welcome to the podcast that does what it says in the tin. It's best film ever. My name is Ian. My name is Liam. And basically, the way this works, is, Liam and I, we, we go see a lot of films together, don't we, Liam? We do indeed. But we look at things, I think, maybe from a couple of different perspectives. Maybe not different perspectives, but we've got different unique angles, I guess, that we sort yeah. of take on. So, uh, for instance, uh, I teach media and film studies, and I think maybe sometimes I look at it from a little bit of a... Uh, uh, analytical perspective, uh, whereas Liam, I don't know, how would you describe the way you look at a movie?
0: Um, I look for the heart and soul of the film.
3: Oh, well, I'm not heartless, at least I hope I'm not heartless. But... No, you're more technical, you're
0: more technical in no. the way you look at
3: things. There is that, so we, we, we tend to go see a lot of the movies at our uh, at our favourite local movie house, The Majestic up in King's Lynn, yep. which got a bit of a cameo this week if you were paying attention. And uh, basically, we sit around afterwards and we go, what did we just watch? Whether it was something uh, like Spider-Man or whether it was something a little bit more Oscar-baity like uh, The Favourite, for instance. I mean, we had a long conversation. After that, and about a little over a year ago, I bought Liam a poster for Christmas and it was all about the 100 films you have to watch before you die. And we got through eight of them and then realized we should really be documenting this somehow. And thus, the idea for a podcast was born and we got, what, Liam, like three or four episodes into this, and then we all got told to yeah. stay in our respective houses.
0: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
3: <laughs> Which was not, I just, you know, I set up, I got, I got some nice kit, a bunch of microphones, and uh, then it turned into, don't need them, just need a Skype connection, really. <laughs> so here we are. But we are now joined by a couple of perma guests, so uh, why don't we let them introduce themselves?
1: Hi, my name's Ellie. And I'm Georgia.
3: And Ellie and George have been joining us, but uh, well, back when we were doing it in, in the in the studio, that sounds so professional, but <laughs> back when we were doing it all at the in same... In the Yeah, back when we were doing it at the uh, at, at the Studio of Awesomeness in uh, East Anglia here, uh, we would have our, our fact-check corner, and we would have a, a sort of a rotating guest system, and now it's just kind of turned into two perma-guests, and that's... That's great. I think it's been helpful in these uh, weeks where we're doing it from a bit of a distance. Liam, I've enjoyed it. How about you? Yeah,
0: yeah. I I haven't enjoyed
3: it. I haven't enjoyed the distance, but...
0: (laughs) The only thing I find difficult is the distance and the um, technology. Yeah. I prefer to sit in the studio with you and record.
3: Yeah, I mean, last time I had to put a little bit of a disclaimer at the start just because some gremlins got in the... uh, Got in the audio. I think it sounded pretty good, but at, at the end of a day, but still, it was a bit of a process. It's a lot easier when you can look at each other and go, "Okay, yeah. you're going to talk, or am I going to talk?" Whereas right now, <laughs> we're just kind of trying to guess for 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 best situation. So, yeah, it'd be a lot easier if there was one simple way we could all be sat around the room, and that kind of leads us to today's film about one simple theory of everything, which was the film choice of the week and ellie i think it was you who suggested theory of everything
1: it certainly was yeah
3: uh can you tell us why you chose theory of everything for your nomination
1: and so i've not i've never got around to watching this film before but i've really wanted to for a long time um i think it sounds well it sounded like the kind of film that i would enjoy um and i know that eddie redmayne got a lot of um good press from it um i believe he won a won an oscar for for best actor for his his work on the film so um was really looking forward to seeing it, yeah,
3: Georgia, had you seen theory of everything before you watched it for this?
1: I hadn't no
2: it was one that I was aware of when it just like came out and all of the hype that it got, but it just wasn't anything that I was particularly bothered about watching at the time um but I spoiler, I kind of enjoyed it, so I'm glad I've watched it okay,
3: Liam, uh, had you seen this before?
0: I had around about the time it came out, okay, and I wasn't too keen on watching it to be fair, okay. But I was pleasantly surprised the first time around and totally blown away the second time.
3: <laughs> so was it was it the first time you weren't looking forward to seeing it or were you not looking forward to revisit it for, for, for the podcast? Mm, no, the first time. Okay. See, I hadn't seen it before either, and I might have been a bit jaded on it because this was about a stretch where a bunch of biopics came out year after year after year, and generally it became anybody who was any sort of an actor took the biopic because they wanted to win Best Actor. It was that kind of a of a gimmick, especially people who were playing others who may have been uh, facing some sort of disability in, in their life. So Jamie Foxx wins for Ray. And um, more, more recently, of course, we've had... Uh, oh, what's his name who won for playing Freddie Mercury? Rami Malek? Rami Malek, yeah. yeah. And then even Taron Egerton, who won the Golden Globe, of course, for playing Elton John. So it does seem to be... But especially if you play someone with, with some form of, of uh, disability, I mean, that that also... Um, helps and someone who was as icon- iconically known in society as Stephen Hawking as he became uh, in his later life, especially thanks to things like The Simpsons and The Big Bang Theory, which kind of took Stephen Hawking places you might not have expected an academic from Cambridge University. So let's talk about The Theory of Everything. It was a 2014 film uh, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, uh, in September 2014, but made its UK release January 1st, 2015. It had a budget of 15 million dollars. Anyone want to guess what kind of a, a haul it took at the box office? 15 million dollar budget.
0: 217 million.
3: There's the first bet. 217 million.
0: Um,
2: I don't know. I can't imagine it being hugely popular before it was. Um, before there was a big hype about it from the critics. Uh, I don't know.
1: Uh, $150 million? I know absolutely nothing about box office figures, so um $200 million.
3: Okay, so, I mean, George's point was kind of where it was at. I mean, movies like this tend to get released right at the very, very, very end of the year, so they're eligible for the Oscars, and the Oscars are very soon into the next year. And you get all the hype from the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes if you're lucky enough to be nominated, which this obviously was. Eddie Redmayne pretty much lapped the circuit with the awards. Uh, And so uh, it did okay. It rode that to uh, $123 million worldwide. So, I mean... Still good. A large chunk of change. I mean, it's not the billion-dollar movies we're talking about today, but this isn't that kind of a film. This was never going to be the one that everybody goes to see. You have to go see this, really, if you're into biopics or you're into, like, long-drawn-out romance sort of films, and that's not really your mass appeal film no matter how good it is but still i mean is it okay for working title and working title who made this film are usually the kind of people who make you things like bridget jones's diary and love actually and things along that nature and so to end up with something like this is a little bit more away from the usual rom-com roots they have the rom just not so much calm (laughs) Uh, obviously largely positive scores uh Sorry, positive reviews from critics. The score and the Corey, sorry, the, the score and the cinematography was highly rated. As were the performances of both lead actors. Um, the guy's name who wrote the screenplay was Anthony McCartin. Uh He's been interested in Hawking since the, the book A Brief History of Time came out in eighty eight, but it wasn't until the memoir written by Jane Hawking came out in two thousand and four. I believe it was called My Life with Stephen. And that is when he started to think about writing a screenplay and didn't have any offers from anybody, but went ahead and met with Jane Hawking, begged her for three years to let him do the film. And I think if we look at this film through the lens of this is adapted from a Jane Hawking piece, it might explain some of the thoughts I had about the film on the whole. Because I think Jane Hawking gets a pretty good, um, gets a pretty good treatment in this film.
1: I would agree. Yeah, interesting you say that because I was just looking at the um, good old Wikipedia article before we uh, started the podcast, and uh, that suggests that she's been rather poorly treated compared to
3: mm-hmm. how Ben yeah.
1: is portrayed. So,
3: or at least poorly treated compared to what her version was. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so perhaps what we actually have in the film is more of a, an accurate representation of events.
3: Well, maybe, well, we we don't know. All we can know is here's what the source material apparently was. And there's some stuff we can talk about at the end in regards to that. Um, in 2009, um, and Anthony McCartan met his first uh, producer, and eventually it did come out, as we know, in 2014. And I think for this film to work, as we sort of begin our deep dive, we have to get through the idea of, we've talked about it a few times here, dramatic irony, the idea that the audience knows more than the characters. And as we sit here in 2014 or 2020, and we watch the film, we know who Stephen Hawking is, we know roughly what Stephen Hawking in our brain looks like, how he looked like when we were introduced to him in real life, or at least through the media, as, as we perceive him, and then we know his ultimate fate. And so, the conversation that was happening here was the idea that it does limit our investment at certain elements, and yes, it does. Like we know, surprise, surprise, Hawking's not going to die in that initial two-year window. But conversely, it's a little bit like like Liam. It's a little bit like when you watched. I can't believe I make this reference this is a little bit like watching the Star Wars prequels when you meet Anakin Skywalker and you're like, that kid's going to be Darth Vader one day. And you watch the whole thing with that understanding.
1: Spoilers.
3: Yes. (laughs) May the fourth be with you. Um, But then we see Stephen Hawking and we instantly know what his downfall will be. And that's a great place to sort of enter the film because I have here written in my notes because we're told it's Cambridge University. I think we're told it's 19... 16- 63. 63 And I've got it in my notes here The past is blue Yeah, I noticed that And foggy Foggy Indoors And they're riding bikes Through the streets of Cambridge
2: That was one of my three notes It says Bikes in Cambridge How original yes. For anyone who's not from around here Or hasn't ever visited Cambridge If you walk through Cambridge City Centre You will be run over by a bike At least once in your journey there
3: Fair However, we see this and we see Stephen Hawking played by uh, Eddie Redmayne and we see him riding a bike and laughing and jostling and winning the bike race and being very, very physical. And immediately to me, that was a bit of an emotional sucker punch because I'm watching everything he's going to lose.
1: There's also the scene where he's coxing the rowing team as well, isn't there?
3: Shortly after, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we get the idea that he is within his circle, he's popular enough. He's physical, he enjoys the company of others, there's things he likes to do, and we know this is all going to be taken away from him. Uh I do have as they go up to this, they ride their bikes up to this party they're going to, and it just looks like a building from the outside. And then when you go in, the music is loud at this party in nineteen sixty-three. I have that they have <laughs> the most soundproof walls ever, because I couldn't hear any of the music on the outside. But once we get inside, that place is rocking. <laughs> Yeah,
0: i can't really
3: know um and so we meet at this point we see uh stephen hawking and his friend brian uh brian who ellie you you realized was
1: um he's the guy that played viserys targaryen in game of thrones which i didn't i didn't actually recognize him from that i was trying to work out where else i'd seen him before yeah. um Turns out I never discovered where that was, but just came across the fact that he was Viserys. Well, you obviously looking. see them as Viserys. I Targaryen. have, but I yeah. just didn't. I wasn't recognizing him as Viserys. I right. think he looks completely different. Maybe in it was this just film. his
3: voice or something. What a spirit! Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, yeah.
1: Uh...
3: But he's there with with his friends, and then in walks Jane, and Jane is with her friend, and her friend really her sole existence was to like allow us to see how different Jane is from her friend because she walks in and goes, ugh like how awful it's the it's the people who study like the properties of the universe (laughs) and so uh we get that idea and then there's a nice little meet cute where uh for some reason within moments steven and um jane have exchanged the fact that steven doesn't believe in god and jane very much does believe in god
2: I found that really strange that that was like in the first topic of conversation that they have. I was struggling to follow it. So I went, have I just fallen asleep for two minutes and they've skipped some dialogue? No, they're just talking about God straight away.
3: I mean, this could be the idea that Eddie Redmayne's playing awkward Stephen Hawking, or maybe at this point he's just playing awkward Eddie Redmayne. I don't know. But he's doing that whole awkward thing. Um, And this has just come up really, really quickly. We quickly get they appear to be diametrically opposed – Yet, they seem to have a connection. He's science, she does art, not just art, but poetry, not just poetry, but romantic European poetry. Uh, and then she's Church of England and attends every week. And he's atheist as they come. <laughs> and so then we cut, there's just a really interesting bit where we hear um, Stephen talking about how he could have. He basically is telling a story about being at Oxford. I think it was before this. Yeah. And he says uh, they I gave him two options. They could give me a second class degree that maybe I deserve, but I tell them I would do my doctorate there in Oxford, or they could give me my first class degree, and they would never have to see me again. And whether this is true or not, it doesn't really matter. It's a great story, isn't it?
1: Fantastic story, and I really hope it is true because yeah. it just speaks to the kind of level of wit of someone who would actually offer that to their professors in a viva at
3: university i'll admit that besides my acknowledge of stephen hawking allowing himself and even his disability to be part of the joke at times of things like the simpsons and big bang theory i didn't know him to be a funny guy but this film clearly wants you to know stephen hawking is funny
2: i did know he was funny i've seen a couple of little bits and some interviews with him in before where he doesn't talk about science, he talks about um, him and his life, and it's mostly just jokes at his own expense. Um, He is really quite a funny guy who, I think, like the film portrayed, saw himself originally not living for very long, wanting to do as much as he could in that time, and then continuing to do as much in the time he didn't know he had left, so he just kept going and going and going, but not taking anything too seriously, because he knew he wouldn't have an infinite amount of time.
0: Is it incredible though, right? He was given two years. Yeah. And yet he lived in his seventies. Yeah. And he was diagnosed as a twenty one year old.
3: Yeah, I mean you just you just don't know. You just don't know. It's not like
0: it's not like that was five years, six
3: years. You know, he was in his seventies. I knew a guy growing up who was given about two years or was given till he was eighteen or something like that, and he's alive now coming up on forty, so sometimes they prove you prove the medical professionals wrong and giddy up because yeah. too often it goes the other way. So God bless anybody who manages to fight back.
0: Well, I also think a lot of it was share will.
3: Yeah. I, I, I think that was at least the, the story they're telling that was definitely something they wanted to attribute to that. Yeah. Without jumping yeah, too far ahead of ourselves.
1: I think I think no. that kind of disability it's very easy to give up um, and to think that you know if you've only got a couple of years to live then what's the point in trying to do anything yeah, worthwhile with that time because you perhaps haven't got enough real time but it's a, it's a really kind of uplifting story to see how much he strived for what he believed in.
3: And while he strove for what he believed in, he did not strive even as a young man to put his glasses on straight.
1: Oh God! I like, never I'm
3: like, fit, did. I'm they, like, guy. I mean, I get it later on, but early on, can you just fix? It? I mean, these are honking, giant, wide rim glasses, and they're always dirty, <laughs> and they're, like, well, they're always and that would come up, and that would be a cute moment later. But just the idea of at least put them on straight, lad. Would you? <laughs> so his turns out uh, his his um, Jane's friend, the la- uh, scientist girl, uh, as I will now call her, uh, has decided that. Um, the party has passed its best and goes to take Jane away and then Jane rushes back and gives her phone number on a napkin to Stephen and as she rushes out and as he's looking at it his hand starts to shake a bit and we get our first glimpse of going oh and we know obviously even more than Stephen does at this point so it's really quite interesting how that plays out and how much we're allowed to see him struggle and we're the only one who really gets to see him struggle and then a couple days later he's doing the whole rowing thing uh he's coxing is that what it's called coxing Yep. coxing the rowing team and they're for a drink at the end of it and he starts to shake a little bit in his hand and, and the bartender i think it is is the one who notices it and he kind of just sort of sloughs it off but then we hear uber loud uh science girl which is convenient because thanks to her, we not only have one meet cute, we get two of them. And Stephen works up all of his gumption and bravado and asks Jane out in front of everybody. And it looks like she might even be there on a date of some sort. But he still asks her to play croquet, which is what all the cool kids are doing on their dates, I suppose. (laughs) And Sunday morning, I want to play croquet. And she reminds him, can't go Sunday morning. Doesn't say why. I guess she doesn't want to come off as a, as a square or something. And, church? Well, yeah, she's going to church, isn't she? But maybe doesn't want to say yeah. it out loud for some reason. At which point, Stephen goes, All right, him. And just kind of leaves that alone. But we get the idea that there's still this sort of a meat cute. And then we find out that Stephen, although what we know about him now, it's quite humorous that he seems to have been a rather, if not bad student, a lazy student.
1: Absolutely. So, they were saying he only did one hour a day of work when he was at Oxford yeah. for his undergraduate degree.
3: So much so that um, his friend Brian wakes him up and says, have you forgotten you you are a, a physics major uh, doing a doctorate at one of the most prestigious universities in the world? Because he's woken up and hasn't done any of the pretentious, b- 10. actually, doesn't he? He is, is a little <laughs> bit pretentious. But, I mean, we met the, the professor in an earlier scene, uh, Professor Dennis And uh, he kind of lets them know that, you know, none of them are probably going to get any of these questions and seems to have especially low expectations for Stephen early on. So Stephen wakes up late, uh, tries to have a go at it, uh, knocks his coffee off because his hand is tremoring, and has to write his answers in the back of a. um, Was was it it a railway schedule? Yeah, it was a railway schedule, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so he walks in and um, he apologizes. As always Steven seems to be walking in late to places in this movie. And the professor who looked like a discount uh Stephen Fry to me, but Georgia, did you recognize where he was from?
2: I didn't, but I did recognize him and it was throwing me off oh, where you is he from? Didn't you?
1: He plays Remus Lupin in the Harry Potter I series. thought so. Yeah,
2: or, yes, or I Inspector
3: Ghoul so. in the terrible remake of an Inspector Calls in the, Calls oh, yeah, on the BBC of a couple is, years yeah. back. Yeah. That was dreadful. Um but And so it turns out that um, Hawking apologizes because he only had time to get nine of a ten or something like that. And at this point, the professor kind of has his goodwill hunting moment and goes, all right, and then walks in and takes him to this fairly ordinary looking workroom. But it is the workroom where some of the greats of Cambridge University have developed the next great breakthrough in humanity. Splitting atoms. Splitting the atom. Thank you. And there was another one that was named. I forget what it was. And I uh, just can't him. remember. Yeah. And Something impressive.
0: Very historical stuff.
3: Very historical stuff. And now he gets the idea that he is, he's been labeled. He has been chosen. He is the golden boy. It was supposed to be impressive. If you could get like one or two of those 10 impossible questions, when he got nine, it was like <laughs> this, he, he is the chosen. I remember a star Wars reference. He is like the chosen one. He is the one who will bring balance to the force. The Chosen One is a Harry Potter reference.
2: The Chosen One is a Matrix reference. <laughs> the Chosen One is a lot of references. Yes. <laughs>
3: Generally, they're all some sort of version of Jesus in, in all the sort of iconography, which is fitting because we're actually recording this on the evening of Easter Sunday. We are indeed. So look at that. Um, and then we go and... um, I forget how this happened. Stephen invites Jane to dinner at his house. Does anybody remember how this came about? Oh, he waits for outside of church, doesn't he? He well,
2: does. That on the wall, she comes out of yeah. church
3: and he's sitting outside of it. Again, this division of God and science represented by, by, by the two of them. He will not go in. He will not cross that threshold. Um, And he invites her to, to, to lunch. And we get her sort of meeting the family. And I'm not sure the family gets a very good rub in this film. No, you know, they okay. all seem a bit... Someone go ahead. George, will, go ahead.
2: They all seem a bit um, stuck up and all very have their own kind of thing that they're all very, very good at and don't seem that impressed by Stephen because of that. So I don't know whether it's something that is passed down. I think one of the girls was reading um, uh, Lord of the Flies at the table and the others were talking about music and poetry and laughing when Jane was saying answers that to them were obviously wrong about her favorites. So, yeah, no, they didn't get the best rappers, at least, being a particularly friendly family, if nothing else.
3: You get the idea that this is a very highly academic family, and Stephen's got... You know, St- Stephen being bright and making it to Cambridge wasn't the big achievement, by any of the imagination. But Jane has not sort of prove her worth by jumping through these verbal hoops. And they kind of grill her about why she believes in God. And uh, she sort of turns it around on S- Stephen, and Stephen says, well you know, any physicist worth his salt shouldn't believe in God. And she kind of says it sounds more like a problem with physicists than a problem with God. And that seems to pass the test. And the family yep. all kind of back down. At this point, I'm going, okay, at first I didn't like the family. Now I think they're okay. Although that would change as we went back to it later on oh, yeah. in, in, in in the film. They're awful. But after the first bit, I was like, oh, I'd rather, yeah, the family's okay. That was my take, at least at that point.
2: I didn't particularly like them throughout it I think even then even where she asked answered their question with a answer that they deemed appropriate it was deemed appropriate as in okay then you can stay rather than a oh okay actually we respect you now and we're going to invite you into our family it was more of a all right you'll do kind of moment than a uh,
3: yeah but um,
0: don't forget it's Jane's view
3: yeah
0: story view so like, she's I- gonna be a bit more um one sided.
3: I was about to ask that. I said, you know, Jane or you see becomes with a perfect thing that wins her the respect of the whole family, and then they all back down. I'm like it's just really hard to divorce the story from the source, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But also from her view, it's gonna be a negative look back on the family, isn't it, given how they treat her later in the
3: film? Uh, we can talk about that because I'm uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't want to get ahead of myself in that same breath. But he does during this dinner say, and I'm going to take Jane to the something ball and catch what ball it was. He said
1: he was inviting her.
3: I've um, invited her to the something ball. The Maybell. The Maybell. And they all kind of go, ooh. And as, as they're all making a big deal, he kind of looks at her and then he actually does ask her. Obviously, this has been sprung on her by surprise. <laughs> but it's a great transition into the, maybe the most beautiful scene in the whole film. Uh, Just from a pure aesthetic standpoint, which was the May Ball itself, of all the fairy lights. And it all looked very vintage, yet timeless, yet it could have happened today.
1: It does happen today. They still have a May Ball every year.
3: Yeah, I guess I just meant like nothing there looked out of place, though. I mean, you could have people in those, because it is Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's one of those lovely traditions that they still have
3: and they are exchanging uh, witty repartee, but not just witty, like highly academic witty repartee. And then she asked him if he'll dance, and I wrote this down because I fully endorse this. Dancing is a phenomenon I'm happy enough to observe but have no intention whatsoever in participating in. And I kind of went, yeah, that sounds good to me. And sounds
1: if, exactly like you.
3: And if it was hawking, then it's hot. Haw- if it was good enough for hawking, it's good enough for me. Uh,
1: Although he did
2: dance a little bit later. So, I mean, they they there's on, hope for you yet.
3: What was the thing? They go on the carousel, and they're, they're, she, he starts giving her some stuff about um, how the phosphorus or whatever in the tide gets trapped in the bow ties, and that's what makes them glow more so than the women's dresses underneath the UV light. But then she starts coming back at him with some poetry. And he's sort of floored And then he goes back With some more signs, And then she actually she, They're underneath A starry sky And she quotes The bible at him You know In the beginning There were the heavens And the earth And the earth Was dark And without form And void yeah. And then he asks her To dance And it's like He's met his Counterpoint again Even though she's So church of England um, He sees Beauty in this And keep in mind She's very much Representing herself At least in these Early stages As if not his equal She can hang With Stephen Hawking On a mental level yeah. So, but then he does dance with her, and it's like he breaks his one rule. And I guess this is the idea that she is the exception. She is the she is the chosen one. She is special. <laughs> um, and then we. So I have written down my thing. They're both kind of sapiosexuals in the sense. Do we do, do, we, do we all know what sapiosexual is? No. No. Anybody? No.
2: No. I know
3: what you mean, yeah A sapiosexual is, is someone, the <laughs> someone who kind of um, Finds himself sexually attracted To intelligent people And it's the intelligence in the other person That actually f- is what is appealing to them Oh, okay, yeah So that's, I can get that And it does seem like, because to both of them I mean, Jane's a, Jane's a pretty girl I mean, she's not There wasn't that moment where she walked across the room And all the guys went, whoa and in the same breath, I mean Stephen Hawking at the as best is Eddie Redmayne looking, you know, even dorkier than he does in that Harry Potter ripoff. And with the glasses that are all falling over. And it wasn't much better, you know, visually from there. And uh so I think the idea that they're so in tune with each other's intellect, with each other's spirits, whatever you want you, what word you want to use, uh is significant. And there was this great shot. I didn't get a whole... Actually, I did get a whole lot in some of the cinematography. But when they dance, there's this great moment where they start dancing and then the camera tilts up and zooms out so much. And it's right above them as they sort of share their first kiss. And it sort of became this idea of motion backwards and the movement of being forwards and backwards, which was a bit of a theme throughout the film.
0: Yeah, that happened a lot.
3: Yeah. Then we switch to... Stephen's been invited by his professor to go see a... Talk somewhere. I didn't catch where, but whatever it was, it required him to go on a train.
2: London, it? it was in
3: London. Was it in London? London. It did yeah. force him to go on a train. And in the sign in the background, it said "This way to trains to Ely, Downham Market, and Kings Lynn." Wahey. which I kind of went. That's kind of that's kind of where I live. As someone who used to live in Ely and used to work in Downham Market, I was sitting and you know and spends my some time at Retro Records and Toys in Kings Lynn (laughs) (laughs) for all your retro needs. um, I was like, hey, it was kind of that little. That's nice because in Canada you're never going to see like Flesherton, Ontario. It's it's not going to happen on (laughs) a on a poster. So it was quite nice all things considered. And he goes and sees this mathematician speak. And the mathematician speaking about black holes and the idea that black holes are always collapsing upon themselves until you end up with one needle point outside of time and outside of space. And Hawking kind of has this revelation that this theory can be used for the universe. So if the universe is always expanding, it meant at one point, it came from something really small that existed outside of time, And outside of space. And this is his big moment. And then the movie does what the movie loves to do here. This film loved a montage. In so many ways. And this became our first montage, which is the maths montage, which was Stephen Hawking writing with chalk on a board and looking more tired and looking like his disability is showing itself to be more and more prevalent his writing is getting messier. I don't know if anybody else noticed that as the montage went on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I did. Yeah. And I you're... didn't know if it was necessarily um I, I obviously it was purposeful, but the first shot of it made me laugh because obviously you don't see him write the entire board and then you see him start writing. And I was like, Yeah, that's not the same handwriting, some yeah. up poor. <laughs> poor apprentice has written all of that on the chalkboard only sure.
3: for it to be <laughs> someone's probably gone look only at for this eddie handwriting Redmayne
2: to come and rub it out
3: yeah someone's gone. Look at, look at this handwriting that i'm gonna you're gonna have to do from eddie and i'll try and mimic that but have it getting generally worse as you go along
1: yeah
3: <laughs> and so he's walking home at the end of the montage and he just trips over his feet or he collapses something happens and his face just hits the the the, the gravel pretty hard and i kind of went oh and this is where we find pretty quickly um, the, the the diagnosis, which a doctor gives him,
1: not before having to watch him have a lumbar puncture. Well,
3: yeah, they had to it take a very some sort of a, a needle from behind his it's ear. Lumbar
1: punctures when they take fluid out of your spine. Yeah, uh, I think it's out of your spinal cord. I believe so. It's like really painful
3: and gross. So we had to watch that. And then we get what I thought was the really painful news, which was you have two years to to, to live. Uh, Everything that makes you you will be taken from you. And the best part or the worst part, depending on how you look at it, is your brain will remain fine as far as your ability to think.
1: Yeah, he said the brain's not affected so your thoughts are the same but eventually nobody will know what they are.
3: No one will know what they are and that sounds pretty traumatic to me. Can we uh, all
1: just agree that that doctor was an
2: asshole yeah. and could absolutely have delivered that news in a better way than he did? And I think it's
3: important. Walk off. And then to walk off. I can't do anything for you and then just walks off. And I think it's important because they played Stephen as being someone who didn't want doctors around and actively avoided doctors. And maybe for that story to make sense, you need this doctor to be that bad.
1: Apparently the film really underplayed how stubborn he was about the doctors as well. So in reality, he was much more against them than the film showed.
3: Yeah, Apparently in her book, Jane Hawking goes into great detail about how defiant and uh, Stephen was about doctors, which we only saw glimpses of, I think, in the film. And then his best friend, whose name was Brian, comes in because uh, Stephen's been absent for a little bit. And uh, he sort of tries come on, let's go. And kind of does that, you know, best friend, boy wind up thing. And he goes, I have a disease. And of course, the friend just goes, What? Venereal? And you're going, <laughs> And we're all, it's like we're inside the room going, Oh, guy, you d- don't say this. You're really good. I mean, British people, especially, are going to go, This is the worst thing ever. Anything more mortifying. Yeah. And then he tells him the truth and goes, I have two years to live. Uh, this. I'm gonna forget how to do everything that I want and love, and this starts the small portion of the film called Stephen feels sorry for himself, and there's no judgment in that because because I sure would feel sorry for myself in this if this happened to me.
0: Oh yeah, I would. I don't know if I could have soldiered on like he did.
3: Yeah, and this is where
2: someone who's sorry.
3: Go ahead, no, please do.
2: Someone who's had a diagnosis not anywhere near as bad as that, and I wasn't told I'd die anytime soon. But for having a diagnosis that affects your day-to-day life, you do feel sorry for yourself, especially when you're first given it, because you go, well, now what am I supposed to do? What's the point now? If everything's just going to keep getting worse, why do you bother with anything now? Um, And actually seeing that portrayed what I appeared to be quite accurately, actually, for someone um, to see that and have that emotion and then have people get him through it was really lovely to see from a perspective of someone who's had... Um, not a similar diagnosis, but not incredibly dissimilar either it was It was quite nice to see it portrayed like that
3: just sort of the sort of what the way that someone who receives that news deals with it, and maybe the fact that Stephen tries to push everybody away,
2: yeah, yeah, it was nice to see that accurately done because people expect you to kind of like accept all the help you're given in that kind of situation, but you don't want to necessarily, so it was nice to see that part of it wasn't cut out it's an important part of the journey i
3: think yeah and really he would have succeeded at pushing everybody away except for jane is a force of nature and so she comes into his i mean his room is so red and if you want to talk about the semiotics of color and anger and Um, (laughs) hurt and frustration. Steven is bathed in red and Jane comes in from the outside with the golden sunlight behind her and comes into his world and tells him, you owe me a game of, eventually, because he says leave, just leave, I don't want to see you, just leave. And she reminds him, you owe me a game of croquet and if you don't come out, I will never come back, ever.
0: And remember, he's watching a black and white movie.
3: Okay, help me with that.
0: Well, everything else is so colorful, like you were saying, the reds and everything and yet he's watching a black-and-white movie. Like, he's seeing his life in black-and-white. Oh, that's
3: interesting. Yeah. And even then, he's still really sarcastic and funny. Like, it's it's in a biting way, but he makes some sort of jokes about all the characters on the screen.
1: He says he's working out the mathematical probability of their happiness.
3: Yes, yes, as this is going on. And so uh, she does go outside with him, and they play croquet. Well, I say they play croquet. Basically, Stephen gets a croquet mallet, and has like an anger game. But as it's going on, there's two things. Number one, we realize through her eyes just how much he has uh, diminished physically.
1: He's visibly lopsided, isn't he, while he's, yeah. while he's playing and really struggling. And it's it's really interesting to see sort of how quick the progression was, I suppose.
3: But secondly, Stephen Hawking, like, even in the early parts of a severe illness, is a better croquet player than I will ever be.
2: I'm really, really bad at croquet. And um, so I was kind of going, no way do you make all of those shots unless you have been playing it through your entire childhood, which you may well have done. Like,
3: I got the idea that oh, he's I like...
0: I was quite good at croquet.
3: <laughs> Did you? <laughs> like, I got the idea that he's like a world-renowned physicist, but it doesn't imply that he's got any coordination to begin with. Let alone... But it was his game of choice, so... But he storms around, again, still feeling sorry for himself, and then storms off and into his room. And she follows him into the room. And uh, I have written down in my notes, does Jane have any negative qualities whatsoever at this point in the film? No. No, she is the angelist of angels who ever angel.
0: Yeah. Again, her story.
3: And then she has this moment where she reaches out, as he's in his poutiest, and again, justifiably so, I would be too, but grabs the glasses and wipes them off and says, your glasses are always so dirty. And I said crooked in my notes, but dirty, she can fix both of them. And she cleans them off. And are the glasses dirty? Is that a symbol for how he's seeing things negatively? He's seeing things through dirty lenses as opposed to through clean lenses and what that means.
2: Yeah, that's nice. I word. think Yeah, I think that's the conversation they're kind of having there without actually saying those words.
3: But it is an intimate moment. The fact that you're going over, you're reaching off, you're, you're you're and you're taking care of him. Yeah. Which is going to be what her life is largely going to consist of going forward, taking care of him. And so, um he comes in with his uh with his canes, and he's got a new lease on life, and tells his professor, "I want to study time." I'm like, okay, great. Dad, Stephen's dad, tries to convince Jane that um, he's not going to live long, so she should pretty much just give up.
1: He says, "The weight of science is against you, and this will not be a fight, Jane. This is going to be a very heavy defeat for all of us." Um, and I think it's kind of the idea as well that he's going to prioritize. The science and his own studies over
3: he has to work he's got two years he needs to work to get everything he wants to out of life
1: yeah so I think it's the idea kind of the father's saying look I know my son and you're not gonna be his number one priority and you might as well just quit while you're ahead
3: now they come at things obviously from a scientific perspective george i'm curious about getting your perspective on this because we know jane is uh someone who studies poetry and romantic poetry so there's uh emotion involved something that this family doesn't seem to have a great deal of they're very rational in how they're dealing with this illness also we know her to be someone who's got belief in god so in the impossible even in miracles if not faith, as a concept. Um, is that kind of what we're seeing at play here? Is Jane's perspective that she is the personification of these sort of elements?
2: Um, I think you probably can look at it that way. I think also she's probably got... She's Obviously, she's incredibly religious and believes in God. I think she's probably praying for him most of the time. So she's hoping that that will have some sort of impact on it. Um, I should imagine she's also as she knows him in a different way to his parents. Because obviously we see him being silly, messing about, doing all sorts of different things that perhaps his parents don't know him to do. And so she might feel like she's got a better insight into how he will cope with it, especially being the person that pulled him out of the funk he was in. Um, So she might have seen a spark there and gone, no, I think he will pull through this. I think he will defy whatever it is that you are... Telling you, I think he will do all of the science, I think he will do all of his studying, but equally I think he will um, live his life in every other way as well. The ways that she's teaching him to enjoy. She teaches him to enjoy the dancing, she teaches him to enjoy the poetry and all of those other things. And things that inevitably make someone not a robot, Um, which again is a strange comparison to make with Stephen Hawking, but it is something that you kind of go without her where does his life go what does his life look like does it end two years into his diagnosis because he doesn't do anything else with his time um so i think it's a really interesting perspective i think even this film was obviously done from her um her words and everything i think she probably did have quite a big role in keeping him going keeping him alive keeping him Thinking about other things and not just himself and the news he's been given.
3: Like Liam, how agree, di- yeah. how different is the story, Liam, if um, she leaves when he says go? If she goes fine and takes off, like how much different is everything?
0: I think um, he would have end up just being a hermit away, just studying, and I don't think his life would have lasted that long. I even wonder if you would think, go ahead. I think I think you need. Um, heart and soul, and she gave that to him. I know it's her words and her story, but I genuinely believe that by having a family around him, by having the support network of his friends, his colleagues, and her, that kept him going. And I think without that, he wouldn't have lived as long as he did.
3: Yeah, not the idea of things that keep him going. Uh, we then cut from here into a series. It's not a montage, but this one's kind of hidden, kind of cleverly because it's done through like like a home movie to show the passage of time. I think we saw the wedding. What else did we see there?
1: Uh, we we then cut to him holding a baby,
3: holding a baby. Yeah, and
0: I reckon that was taken from proper home movies.
3: Yeah, that could have been. Actually, I imagine it. It's it sort of it would make sense to just sort of go ahead and and, and use those kinds of.
0: And just copy them. Source yeah.
3: material. And we have a shot of a very sort of uh, modest house in Cambridge, which I have every reason to believe that's going to be the house they actually did live in at some point. Why would yeah. you? Why I'd wouldn't say you? so. Yeah. And so, um, and then we cut to, there's some feet dragging, and he's now got two canes, and he's dragging himself into his PhD um, interview, which does happen. When you, when you have a PhD, you have to sit there and stand before a panel, or sit, but Stephen chooses to stand, obviously, and sort of defend your paper. And it's a panel of people who have their PhDs who are responsible for being part of that process.
1: I believe this was his PhD viva, so similar to what he was talking about at the start with what he had to do at Oxford, where he gave them the "you either give me a two two and I stay, or two or a first and I leave." Um, this is the similar kind of end of the. End of the PhD interview that they have.
3: Yeah, but you 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 were sent there to defend your thesis. So they would have given him some sort of notes before you go in, and then you actually have okay. to respond.
1: Yeah, but if that's what a fever is.
3: And basically they, they they sort of poke holes in a lot of his paper, and they say it's repetitive and derivative here, and it's full you don't prove it, and da 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 da. da. And so he looks kind of down, but then they basically go, It's the most brilliant thing we've read. <laughs> you are now Dr. Hawking. And uh and they say, well, what's next? And he goes, well, well I'm, I'm, I'm going to prove it. And the idea that, you know, he's going to prove of one... He says, wouldn't that be nice? One elegant little um, formula that explains everything. And uh, so that sort of... He shows his his personal life, obviously, has purpose. And his professional life very much now has purpose. As a result, we... I mean, this really leads you to believe, about Jane, none of this happens. Um, and so there's a celebratory dinner and... It was a great moment because everybody's celebrating Stephen's successes and he's struggling to eat. Is it peas or is it soup? Yeah. Something. And with a spoon. Mm. And he's his face all the way down. And then the sound kind of muffles out and we just see everything from Stephen's perspective. And you can't help. It sort of disembodies everybody by taking the heads away. Almost, but we see how easily people are reaching for wine glasses and picking up bread and passing the salt. And yet, this supposed to be a moment showing his genius, and yet he is so limited compared to everybody else. And so he excuses himself and drags himself up the stairs a bit and sees his child looking down on him, and they're both kind of in a similar state of ability. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, his son only because he's behind a gate but him because he's just laying there on the stairs.
1: Yeah, um, I thought this scene was really interesting because um, you can see his son quite clearly at the top of these stairs, and he's, I would say, definitely like past his first birthday in age. Um, so when you kind of do the maths, you realize that that must mean that Stephen Hawking is now at around the two-year mark since his diagnosis. So this is the point at which he was expected to not live any longer.
3: So he's already playing on borrowed time to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. And then we cut to a scene where it's just him and Jane in a kitchen and they're just sitting there and without a word, Jane leaves. And Georgia, he comes back, sorry, she comes back silently with the wheelchair. And without Mm -hmm. a word, Stephen gets up, he puts himself in the chair and says, after he's done, he goes, this is only temporary.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: But it's a soul punch, I think, because we know... He's never getting out of that chair. So I found yeah. that I found that an impactful scene, Georgia. How do you find it?
2: I found it to be really interesting as well. I thought it was also a bit of a soul punch because it's not him that chooses the wheelchair. She kind of goes, "You need this," without actually saying anything, um, and that's a bit heartbreaking as well. And then he gets in it and says, "This is only temporary," and it fills you with this. He really, you you know, he really believes it he wants it to only be temporary but I think there's a bit of it, obviously we know it's not and I think to a certain degree at that point he also knows it's not but really wants it to be temporary um, he wants to get back out of it but just knows he can't live without it at the moment and it's it's a very humbling kind of thing to watch someone go yeah, no, I need this help um, yeah. without saying anything without protest without pity he just sits in it and it's, it's very powerful
3: now Liam without you know I mean I think we're, we're kind of I think we've had conversations before where we said at times we're not the most stereotypically masculine of men no but I still think there's that bit where you go whether it's correct or not you go I, I really don't want you know you don't want your your, your your wife taking care of you to that degree and you see your agency and your ability to take care of yourself, diminishing and seeing her load get heavier. That's, that's, I mean, I don't know. I'm just sitting there going, this would kill me.
0: Yeah, it would, it would me too. And that's the things that was going through my head when I was watching it. Because I'd be thinking to myself, no, damn you, I'm not getting in that chair. I know that'll be it if I get in that chair. So I wouldn't do it. My personality and the way I feel, I wouldn't have done it. But it was right for him.
3: I thought it was really interesting that when he says it's temporary... She doesn't fight it, and they're both smart people, but I think it's yeah. just a thing you have to say to get yourself in the chair the first time. Yeah. Is yeah. that I I will get out of it one day, even though we know, obviously, it won't happen. I think we know he knows that too. Yeah. And then we go to him defending or presenting his thoughts on his thesis to all the academics of, well, it seems like the known world. And... um. And as he's giving his and his speech is starting to become more of an issue for the audience because there's elements that are getting hard for me to understand anyway. I don't know if anybody else had a hard time with it.
1: I really struggled with some of the scenes in this film to work out what he was saying. Yeah, Georgia? Yeah, about um, an hour into the film, I should imagine with about an hour left, didn't help
2: that though I had background noise and things going on and other people watching other things around me. But I did put the subtitles on um, because I couldn't make out. That's fine. I understand that what was being said. Um, obviously, with background noise, it wouldn't have helped. But yeah, no, I did put them on just so I could make out what he was saying with enough time to kind of process it. Yeah. Because obviously, it's the first time I've watched the film as well.
0: Liam, how about you? Uh, no, because Jane herself would often say the words again. It wasn't until he was on his own that he, you, you struggled with his speech. Yeah, and but it's... when she was with him, she would confirm his what he was saying.
3: Yeah, I noticed that too. And this time, uh, when he was doing the speech in front of all the bigwigs, it helped the audience. They sort of helped get it by having like his, uh, was it Brian, his old roommate? Yeah,
1: he was talking in the pub.
3: Brian's talking in the pub to his mates and he's sort of explaining it to them so as a result, we get to kind of get that sort of his mates dumbed down sort of version of it where we were given all these visuals of spinning circles. And actually we we, we saw – it was a bit of a theme visually throughout the film because we saw uh, circles, a lot of circles in this film. And one of them happened when we had Stephen pouring cream into his coffee or milk into his coffee and it was swirling around and in this case, we had the beer with the circle and it's swirling around. And this became, I think you're right, Liam, a bit of a uh, device used by the filmmakers to make sure that we knew what he was saying uh, without yeah. resorting to having to put on subtitles. And I understand why Georgia had to put subtitles on. But I was sitting there. I <laughs> actually have my notes. I was going to bring it up as a question, but we can talk about it now. You know, was that – because the filmmakers could have put subtitles over Steven, couldn't they?
0: I'm glad they didn't. And
3: Me too. I was going to ask about that, yeah.
0: I think I think you concentrate more in the scene, listen to what he's trying to say, so you focus more on it.
3: I also think that if we're frustrated at not being able to hear him, A, we empathize more with Jane, and I think we also empathize more with Stephen, the idea going like, you know, this is a man who's so brilliant, and the only thing that's getting in the way is he can't deliver the words.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It made me feel really sorry for him. and It did did start to really frustrate me in the middle of the film, um that I couldn't understand anything he was saying at all for a little while. Um but it did did seem to get better um not you know, but before he had his tracheotomy, um I could understand some of what he was saying. So yeah, I think maybe it is more of a tool to get the audience to really get involved. Okay.
0: And understand his struggles. You're struggling to listen, so you're understanding his yeah. struggles.
3: Yeah. So if we move quickly past a couple scenes, uh, there's a scene when they go out drinking and Brian, his buddy, is helping carry him and take care of him. And it's nice to see that that relationship has been fixed. And there's a great shot where he leaves Stephen sort of laying in the arms of Queen Victoria in the statue, which was fantastic. And then we finally start to see that Jane is struggling. Jane is not Superwoman. And we see the kids running around and um, we see Stevens like moving around with them. I think at this point now he has his electric wheelchair that helps him move around. Um, But the thing we do see is that Jane is trying still to do her PhD at her desk, but no one's given her a fraction of the support that she's been such a supportive role. I kind of guess she'd given up on the PhD, but obviously has not. And we start to see her struggle and um, we see her starting to cry um, we see her really struggling with what's going on and, um, her mum suggests you should go to the choir. And as soon as she walks through the doors, it back into the, into the choir, into the church and we meet Jonathan and I've gotten my notes. Could Jonathan be any more attractive?
2: Yeah, he was quite percy.
3: <laughs> and he's everything Stephen is not a, he's well, able right b he's uh a guy who who loves music he's a guy who uh shares her religious beliefs uh we find out later he's got a bit of a, a of a wounded backstory himself Very in a way that would make so. in a way that would make him and jane quite compatible um and so he she's he's invited home because he's going to help teach uh, the eldest of the hawkings how to play piano and Stephen experiences this by coming through and seeing another man sat beside his son teaching him how to play piano.
1: It was heartbreaking. And, it's,
3: and we're left outside the room with Stephen. We don't get that close-up shot of the two of them. We see things from Stephen's perspective. And if you consider how tactile of an instrument the piano is and the dexterity of it's required in order to play that, let alone now that his son has kind of a role model who's more able than he is. Yeah,
0: and he And you also that. How he stuck his arm around the child, yeah, like a father would. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's what I was just going to say. He sat right up next to him, isn't he? It's it's very much a paternal figure that and I, he's representing.
3: And I don't know about you, I, I quite like Jonathan throughout. Yeah, he was my favorite character. Does he? Oh, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'll act surprised I when I ask you the question later. Sorry, but no, but Jonathan, I, I quite like Jonathan as a character, and uh, I, I don't think. I don't think he's doing anything necessarily wrong, but I fully understand why Stephen would get jealous. Absolutely, I yeah. totally understand. Georgie, you've been pretty quiet on this.
1: I
2: think you have to like him for the for you to not resent Jane as well. Um,
3: yeah, I have that later. Yeah. I think it's
2: all it's very relatable. You have to understand where it's coming from because at the end of the day, he's still a very very good good guy he's not done anything wrong he just wants to help um as soon as he realizes he's having feelings for jane he leaves um it's all very above board he does nothing wrong he wants to just help um and it's not until other people start speculating that he then goes i can't do this anymore um and i think it's a very noble thing to help another Family, because you even see the relationship blossom where he's helping Stephen as well.
3: Yeah,
0: I
2: think at one point he's helping him on the toilet, Absolutely. and that's um, obviously something very personal. But they're laughing and having fun, and all sorts of different bits and pieces, and it's lovely to see.
1: I think with with Jonathan, he's um, he is very much sort of presented like a sort of a fifth member of the family while they're while they're going around, and I think he is portrayed as being very likable, and it's not just because of. Um, kind of how he fits in with Stephen but how you see in the scenes before Jane actually goes to the church choir um you've got this bit where Stephen's playing with the kids um and he's got his electric wheelchair and he's sort of knocking things around the room and you just kind of see her in the other room and it's kind of like this gosh this is really getting to me now I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one that has to deal with this afterwards I'm gonna have to I sort of got the got the sense it was like I'm gonna I'm gonna have to clear this up I'm gonna have to do this and it's really bothering me um and uh then you've got when they go to his parents as well and he starts choking and she gets really frustrated because he won't see a doctor and she goes off and cries and it's like she's really reached the end of her tether and then jonathan comes into the film
3: that's fair yeah
1: so i think right from the offset we we do like him more because he's a lifeline to jane
3: now if i can go back to this um dinner scene Um, it's interesting because I think this starts to show where each of these characters are at and the dinner, it felt like I wrote down the date. It felt really weird. Um, but we get the idea that she's explaining Stephen's principles or his theories to Jonathan, which is great because as Jonathan gets to ask the stupid question and try and get his head around the science, that's an easy way to tell the audience what's going on. And you use Jonathan as the storytelling device for that. Um, and then we find outside that Jonathan's got a similar story. Jonathan lost his wife, lost his wife to leukemia. And so they both know what it's like to care. And they both know what it's like to be a support for someone else and be on the losing side of that battle. Whereas Jonathan's was was, was a quick loss, relatively speaking. Um, Jane's is a much longer thing. And uh,
0: Did you get the bit where um, every question that he was asking is the question she asked and she answered... How Stephen Hawkins answered when she asked the question.
3: Yeah, she's she knows his stuff backward and forward, but she's also starting to cut him off when he's trying to give the yeah. answer. And she almost yeah. seems a little frustrated with the delays. Like it's finally starting to wear at her just a bit. Yeah. And she's appreciating having a faster paced conversation, maybe.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And a bit did. of a bit of normality.
1: I think because of that as well, and, and as you can see them all getting on really well, you do start to wonder whether perhaps she is starting to fall for Jonathan. Um, oh, I, I had but, it called from
3: minute one, yeah. But, um, okay, yeah. It's,
1: but then it sort of sets us straight without being too expositional, really, because when she goes and tells Jonathan that she's pregnant, he says that he assumed her and Stephen couldn't and just doesn't finish the sentence. But yeah, it, it shows that he obviously
0: hasn't gone there. No, I
3: didn't see it that way. Okay, I, I just want to recap a couple scenes then we can get to the, the pregnancy bit, if that's okay. Yeah, okay. So we have more home movies, which I think is important because the, 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 the home movies show the development of this kind of three-person relationship between all three members and that Stephen's okay with Jonathan and that Jonathan's okay with Stephen and it really is a three-person codependent kind of relationship. But as it's going on, there's moments. And there's moments like when Jonathan kind of steals a little bit. They're playing hide-and-seek with the kids, I think. And yeah. Jonathan and Jane bend behind the tree, and you're starting to go. Oh, these are stolen little moments, and these yeah. are a little bit. well, uh, oh, it's a little bit not quite, quite right.
1: They're very tactile, aren't very
3: they? Very tactile. And then we get the. I need to see you, and then I'm pregnant, and it doesn't answer the question for us, like you were, like you were alluding to. And so, what do you do with this? And so, in my brain, am I, am I the only person? I don't think so. So, well, so when. I'll just sort of recap the scene. There's, there's a celebration party for the, for the baby. And um, Jane's mother-in-law, Stephen's mother, pulls her aside and basically says, you need to end this thing with Jonathan now. Who, we deserve the right to know. Whose baby is it? And Jane gets really, really mad and really upset. But the filmmakers have definitely positioned us in a way that, I mean, I, I was thinking in my head that she, sorry, that Jonathan was, was the father at first.
1: Well, even after that scene where right. she tells him she's pregnant?
3: I thought especially because of a scene where she tells yeah. her she's pregnant. Oh no, I no. took
1: that completely the other way. Yeah, because he says, "I assumed you and Stephen," as in like I didn't realize he was able to have sex. Um, it's like very clear, you know. It's it's not me, so you must be able to do it with him.
0: That went. I'm, I'm good at
3: it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking it was just some sort of a uh, a cut. Co- co- I know Stephen was able to. And sort of the way the kind of how you're going to say what your plan is without saying what your plan is.
1: Oh, I see what you mean. But no, to me, that was literally the complete opposite.
3: And we did miss, there was a bit where Jane puts Stephen to bed and he says, thank you, and kind of cradles her. And she cradles him. And then she starts to touch his arm. And that's as far as it goes. But it did feel very, very intimate. And that's based on the fact that Jane um, Hawking said that uh, there was to be no sex scene ever between their characters in the film. Oh really? Yeah. So she said I I will not sign off on this if there's a, any sort of a sex scene in it. I guess because you didn't want what must have been a very intimate and unique situation to them. And yeah. you don't want that sullied or or even normalized. It's just it's just really tricky.
0: Can I just say I wouldn't have blamed her though?
3: Oh heck no, I'm not. Yeah, absolutely. If she
0: had I I totally understood, and that's why I found that relationship quite heartbreaking, because I actually, you saw them get together. You saw them um, becoming close with each other.
3: This is Jonathan and and Jane you're talking about, yeah?
0: Yeah, Jonathan and Jane, yeah. But you also sympathize with the fact of Stephen, but he's also noticing this. He's not stupid.
3: Yeah, that's a conversation that was had while we were watching it, was the idea that, you know, Stephen's not, Steven literally Steven's not a stupid man he's probably the smartest right. man on the planet at the time so he's, he's watching unfold and he said at the dance let's not forget he said I love to watch people dance he's he's an yeah. observer of the human condition this is not getting by him when you were confined to your wheelchair and you can't speak you got a lot of time to watch other people exactly yeah but the fact that he invites um Jonathan along not just at a time where he explicitly does but in that montage we get the idea that he's very okay with Jonathan being around and I think on some level he's made it peace with it in his heart what is going to what is sort of going on
1: I think it's yeah. because he can see that Jonathan being around has given his wife a new lease of life and that they're all enjoying their family time together and it's so much pressure and stress is lifted on their relationship
3: well, on that note, when asked by her mother in law what's going on, she emphatically says it's impossible for it to be anybody but Stephen. Jonathan overhears this and leaves, and she chases after him. And he admits that he has feelings for her. She admits that she has feelings for him. And Jonathan takes that's the sign that things have gotten too close, and he goes for a walk. So Jonathan is I a, did you ready? Jonathan is a stand up guy. He's an absolutely yeah, stand up guy. Um, around this time, um. Stephen Hawking has been uh, invited to go see some Wagner in Bordeaux. Um, He wants Jane to come with, but Jane will not fly. So uh, he even says to her, invite Jonathan to come along. And she says, I don't think he will. And he says, well, just try. And then we have a scene where Stephen Hawking goes goes into the church. Let's think about how significant this is. He goes into the church and he sits down side by side with Jonathan and he's got a couple of beers. And we don't really get what the conversation is, but I think... Well, it'd be clear. What did you think the conversation was? Because we there was a bit of a disagreement here, but I think I know what it was.
0: I think the conversation was, I know where this is going with my wife and you. Um, you have my blessing. Is what I got from
3: it. Georgia, thoughts?
2: I think it was similar to that. I don't think it would have been as outright i think it was a please come and help
3: (laughs) this is england after all
2: exactly yeah um i think it would have been a i i think it probably would have been an i need you my wife needs you our children need you can we can you come back and help us i give you full permission i'm not the one that's judging you this kind of sort of thing um kind of an explanation of what he expected perhaps might happen and then a please come with my wife to bordeaux and obviously agrees to that and it's such a lovely scene as well when they're setting up the tent is really sweet but then he gets in his own tent um so obviously there's still that divide even going
1: that far into a relationship
3: uh ellie what what, what did you think about the conversation
1: um i didn't really pick up on it in that way at the time um but i mean I've sort of been swayed around to to thinking the same the same thing, really, that it was sort of giving his blessing. Um, I suppose it was more once we got to the camping scene that I kind of realized that something must have
3: happened. Because, Liam, I, I, I'm with you. I think Stephen's going there. He brings beer. And this is a very much a man's kind of heart-to-heart, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And so I think the conversation is... It might not be, you know, it is England, uh, but it, 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 he says, my, my wife needs you. And I think the message there is, look, I'm aware of what's going on. I've I've been aware of what's going on this whole time, and I'm still saying I want you to come along. Yeah. And realizing that for everything that she does in sort of a superhuman way for him, this is something he can kind of do back for her. Yeah. So, yeah. and we have this one with it's It's a very, I'm, I'm with, I don't know if it was George Orelli who said it, but this lovely scene when they're setting things up at the camping site. And it felt like a very yeah. much a little family at that point. It did. And then he goes into his tent, and that was a bit awkward. And then she leaves, but then she gets up and goes into his tent. And wouldn't that just be the night where um, Stephen Hawking chokes and has to be put into a coma when he's a- away at the opera? And the guilt yeah. that must have been felt. And then we cut. And she is, well, first off, they're they're driving through the underpass and there's giant lights, both white and red, these circles all over the screen. Again, representing, I think, this idea of black holes and shrinking to nothing and all that stuff. But then she's cut outside of a plane. And just like Steven walks into a church, she's about to go on a plane. Yeah. And Jonathan goes, I know I have to back off. And that's kind of the end of that relationship for now.
1: She also says goodbye, and it's it's very much like a final goodbye, it felt, yeah. rather than just a, you know, see you back in England.
3: And again, nothing was too salacious. And again, I think we have to consider the source, right? Yeah. Like, everybody's being yeah. very above board, as much as you yeah. can in the situation.
2: Although I think it's quite implicitly implied, at least I thought it was, from her reaction to what's happening with... Um, With Stephen at that time, and what we're shown just before that, obviously she goes into Jonathan's tent, we're making sure the children are asleep. Yes, and then is obviously back in her tent before they wake up because that's when she gets, of course, uh, she gets the news in the morning. Um, But I think it's quite, I think it's implied that they have. That's probably the first night they've done something that's not above board. um, Yes, is at least how I would, (laughs) how I would have read that. And then that's probably why she's not the entire reason but at least some of the reason why she's quite so adamant that he has not taken off his life support at when they offer it because she
3: You can't have him even if he dies. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So and I, I also, think throw it's...
0: a spanner in the works, I think, I think in real life a lot more went on <laughs> From what we on
3: screen, if you have a legal team for Jane Hawking, that was Liam who said. The views expressed are those the individuals and do not represent those of the my podcast. Opinion.
0: It's only my opinion.
3: And there is something when we go. Who's the source? whose story is it? Who gets to tell the story, and who isn't getting exactly. to tell the story? Yeah. And while we're at it, I mean, how heartless is this French doctor? While we're at it. Hmm. You know, we're going to have to intubate him. Wouldn't you rather we just took him off life support and would you just rather we didn't fix him? And it's like, no. And again, this idea. The source. Yeah, the source. You want her to be good, don't yeah. you? So for her to turn around, it's so easy to say yes. It's yeah. so simple
0: to say yes, turn it off.
3: So if we if we just stop for a moment and think of this as, as an accurate or inaccurate historical account and we just look at these as fictional characters for a moment. So what does it show Jane to be? It shows Jane again to be a woman of faith, both in her husband, maybe also in God. And then we cross cut and we see them doing the tracheotomy on him and she's outside praying. And so we had the scientists in the medical field doing what they do with science and we had Jane doing what she does, supporting, praying, believing. So then we get introduced to the spelling board, And the most brilliant man in the world is having to be forced to blink on green, red, pink, yellow, black. And that was just the bit where you look into Eddie Redmayne's eyes and you go, he's portraying the, I can't, I'm supposed to do what? You've got to be kidding me. And just. But giving up without—he's—he's he's giving up, but doesn't have the ability to communicate with anybody that he's giving up, and all you can do is just sort of look off in the distance and just kind of like not engage.
1: And
0: really, not and the thing <laughs> is—it frames her face.
3: Yeah, it's and he can't look, look at her. Face. oh, And the determination as she's looking through tears because she's having to portray, and I'm sorry, but uh, what's her name here? It's Felicity Jones. Knocked this one out of the park. I thought she was great. Felicity Jones is amazing. And she absolutely is just sitting there just staring at him, defying him to not give up out of her own guilt, out of her own determination, out of her own support, out of her own goodwill for Stephen in general.
1: And also just being really, really brave to go in there and do that because she knows that he's going to hate it and she knows that he's just found out he can never talk again.
3: And to start at zero. Yeah. 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 And so then we get introduced to Elaine. Is it Elaine? Yeah. Elaine. Yeah. Elaine yeah. is his new private care nurse and she's going to help with it and she starts off and she insists, please leave and shut the door. And for the first time, we see Jane able to have something in her life outside of caring for Stephen. And it's interesting what that does to that dynamic.
0: Yeah, a bit of jealousy there.
3: Uh, From her. At first, I don't think so. At first, I think she's like, okay, great. And then we see what happens. Yeah. And quickly, it turns out he wants a cup of tea and builder's tea. And then she goes out at the end of a day. We, we we cut to the end of it, and Elaine is going about how he might be the smartest man she's ever met, and he's so funny. And Jane cuts him off, and cu- cuts her off, and goes, "Let's see how you do at the end of the week. Let's see how you feel then." It's,
1: she's making yeah. him out to be, you know, the, well, he is obviously this amazing man, but it's like, oh, you must worship the ground that he. What did the, what he was gonna say, wheels, "Walks on," which let her wheels sit on, and, and I think she says that you. You, you're so lucky to have him or something. And yeah. and obviously when you've been, been a carer for him all this time with him not able to do anything for himself, obviously he's very lucky to have Jane as well. And oh, it's, it yeah. was a tough scene. That but one. I think
3: it shows the years of wear on Jane and going. Like she yeah. was the optimist when it first started. And now 20 years, whatever it's been of caring for him have taken their toll. And not yeah. she's lost who she is, but that, you know, um, but that unabashed optimism uh is, is 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 gone. And so as a result, we're left with kind of this friction between the new shiny toy and uh and the way things had previously been. And then we get introduced to Stephen Hawking's new voice. And an interesting story about this was when they tried to replicate the famous Stephen Hawking voice, they could not get it to work. And so they reached out to Stephen Hawking because his voice is trademarked and he gave them wow. permission to <laughs> so use cool. the Stephen Hawking voice in the film. Oh, That's cool. Yeah. So he actually recorded the lines and sort of delivered. let the computer program, I don't, I don't know how you want to determine it, but his voice was allowed, his actual voice was allowed to be used. That American voice as well, the fact that it's not British, but now it's American. He's a new Stephen. And of course, what happens? Uh, Jane doesn't like it, but Elaine thinks it sounds fantastic. And this (laughs) idea of this new version and he's framed in the middle, it's him in the middle and the two women on each side. And we see this sort of pull. Uh, A great moment, though, is when he's, just really quickly, he's got a bag on his head and he's driving around after his kids going exterminate, exterminate, which if you're from America or Canada, you might not get. It's a Doctor Who reference and he's pretending to be a Dalek, which is one of the villains. But the question that uh, Ellie thought of was...
1: How did the bag get on his head?
3: She put it on his head. Well, no, she's in the other room.
1: Like, they're laughing at him and it's it's like he's had this kind of really funny idea on his own that he's going to pretend to be a Dalek and... Like he's done all the setup, and then it's a bit of a tee hee hee look what I've done kind of moment but someone must have helped him. I should
2: imagine it was one of his children probably wrote on the bag and then showed it to him and like asked to put it on his head and he ran with it but I'd be interested to know if that is a actual little memory from their childhood if that is actually real I'd be interested. That out.
3: and then hawking has his groove back for the second time in the film and he comes in and this time rather than saying, i'm gonna write, do my phd's gonna be on time he goes i'm gonna write a book and jane asks him oh a book and what's that going to be about and he just responds time and um he goes back to cambridge and it's all these shots of cambridge university and i've written down in my notes here hawking's book and cambridge porn and i did not realize how accurate that statement was about to get <laughs> because now <laughs> he cut to his office and elaine is help is there with him i guess where he steven goes elaine now goes and she discovers the penthouse magazine on the uh table and um that was part of an earlier scene there's a bet where if no, one could no, disprove no. the other then the 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 punishment was they would sign you up for a uh for a porn magazine subscription of your uh, of their choosing, so he is penthouse, and yet Elaine goes. You don't have to be embarrassed by this, and she opens the magazine, takes his notes off the music stand, puts it on the music stand, and kind of walks through and goes, "I know what men like you are like," and he kind of smiles, and it's this intimate, um, appealing. She sees him as more than just the guy she is to care for. She does give him some sense of his own masculinity, sexuality. For a moment, he's not Stephen Hawking guy who's stuck in the chair. He's Stephen Hawking, he's a guy. Hey, check out how good this girl looks. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's a thing. and she's got a fun she's got a fun energy about her, Elaine does. I like her. And Stephen's starting to get, for lack of a better word, seduced. I don't think it's underhanded what she's trying to do but it's clear and we just saw this happen we just saw and we're kind of okay with the jonathan relationship with uh jane and now they show us this one and it's really hard as the audience after he goes with the beer and has the summit in the church to now go careful stephen careful am am i wrong
0: no no you're not
3: and then we cut to uh, In the House and he's decided he's going to write his book and he's going to call it not just A History of Time, he goes back and puts A Brief History of Time. And I never noticed until that moment how funny that title is. I know. It's great, isn't it? Yeah,
2: I did. It's something like really appreciate I, in his works is that there is a sense of humor to it i
3: thought he was just like being bombastic future, and like it? pretentious by saying a brief history of time because i could go yeah. on for years but i am going to do it in a brief amount of time
1: lovely british you know,
3: I, I you. Think it
0: is like brief as being small and history as being long
3: yeah absolutely i i, I, just to, I, I think it's him absolutely having a joke yeah
0: yeah, yeah completely.
3: and so uh he does write though um his wife um, uh, Jane has found part of his uh, manuscript where he says that humanity needs to know why we're here and what we are doing here, and if we ever achieve that, then we will uh, we will achieve the mind of God. And Jane, for the first time in her life, sees this as proof that her husband believes in God. And she goes, "Does that actually mean you believe in him? You believe in him?" And he goes, "Yes." However, and she goes, no, don't don't take this from me. Let me have this. (laughs) And so he goes, you're welcome. And then he types it but doesn't say it. The idea of I'm going to America and I've asked Elaine to go with me. And he just sits there. And we get to see it. And Stephen gets to see it, of course. And we get to see Stephen looking at Jane wondering, is now the time? And I'm thinking he's not going to send it. He's not going to send it. And then he does
0: Yeah Ooh. Oh man, this scene this, this had me in tears
3: And so the message here is He's, in essence, he's asking To separate, he's asking for yeah. a divorce he's, He wants to partner With Elaine
0: And Dean knows the beautiful moment She gets down on her knees So she's lower than him
3: Yeah, for That's once it. he gets to look at her eye to eye Or even looking down at her like he did when they first dated
0: yeah. yeah. Oh. And she said, I, try, I did my best.
3: Yeah. And I loved you.
0: I have loved you. I yeah. have loved I you. At one point love you. Yeah.
3: And Eddie Redmayne, bless him, he's crying his eyes out in this. God, he, 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 here to keep that day. That's for sure. That
0: was brilliant.
3: Brilliant scene. So, and so now he goes off to America and we have um, Jane go back to church where Jonathan, thankfully, is still running the choir. And he sees her there. And he walks away, and she goes to walk out, and then he plays a song. And I'm guessing, George, if a song must have had some, some like, was this the same song he was playing with their son earlier in the film?
2: Yes. I don't, I'm sure it was. I don't know.
3: Liam, you, I, you think so? I thought it was. Because it definitely, and she ch- takes us as a sign. It was like something out of La La Land, and she turns around and goes, yes. you're playing my song, and rushes yes. in, and they kind of have a make-out moment in the, what's that thing called in the side of a church? That little the room Lady off Chapel? to the side? Lady Chapel's not what I was... Nay? No, not nave. Nay? I, I don't know. Whatever that side room is in the church. Yeah. vestry? Yeah, I don't Oh, maybe that's it. A vestry?
1: I didn't really pay much attention to which room they were in, to be honest. It was so. a
3: little side room with with a piano. But they start having a little kissing session inside the church. Then we go back to America, and Stephen Hawking is fresh off the plane, and people are taking his photographs, And about because his, his book is now published. He's now a superstar. And a million idiots have their books out with pens for Stephen Hawking to sign. <laughs> like, the guy is in a wheelchair, but he has to move with, like, one of his knuckles, basically, or something like that. Like, like, severely needs assistance. And you think he's going to sign the book. Now, I don't know if this is legitimately what happened or the producers went, how can we get across the idea that they are... um but that he's really, really famous. I know we'll have people looking for autographs. And I just went, Give me a break. I'm hoping it's true and there's people were that I stupid. That was funny. I liked the it was concept fun- of it. it. was I thought it was insulting, but the only-
0: I
2: would imagine
1: I, it probably was real. Yeah. The only thing I can hope is that perhaps Elaine like did some kind of like on behalf of yeah. Stephen Hawking signatures in his books or something.
0: Liam? I think Stephen Hawkins would have found that funny in real life if that was true because how ironic that was because he was quite funny himself and he took the mick out of certain things. So I think he'd have found that quite funny and that would have been a bit of normality for him. Yeah. Do you agree or disagree?
3: Um, I mean, I think the humor's there. I, I I think it is a beat in a movie that needs a beat, especially at that point because of what's happened. We we had our feel-good moment with... Jonathan and Jane getting together. It's something the filmmakers have told us we want to see. The filmmakers have made it something that we want to see. And now we see that come full circle and we're okay. It's
0: the first time you see him as a superstar.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it is true. All the way from Cambridge yeah. and humble little beginnings. And, you know, I'm not a rock star. He says earlier in, in the film, doesn't he? And now we see him treated like a rock star. Absolutely. Actually, that's, okay. You, you've, you've, you've won me over with that. Okay. You have, cool. um, and then we get to the idea where he needs to be introduced for his speech on the stage. And Dennis, his old professor, introduces him. And this is supposed to be like twenty-five years on. And, and Dennis has not aged a day. Steve really thought that myself.
2: I yeah, don't I think it's me. that far on, because if you look at the ages of his children in the next scene, the oldest one is not much above
3: 18 no it has to be because he meets the professor in november of 63 and his book comes out in
0: 1988 yeah and he even says so many years ago
3: yeah
2: then the time frame with the children is strange um but or more time has passed than we're
3: i think more time has passed i think i think i think they were married for longer than we realized before the baby came along
1: there's also quite a lot of um, discrepancy between the film and real life in terms of the timelines so the kids
3: could have been much older at that point that'd be worth looking into
1: um, the, yeah. sort of the things—the things that happen next in the film—are are definitely not in time
3: with. Yeah. Reality. But my favorite thing here is that so Remus Lupin has not aged a day because <laughs> he's had some spell, but
2: because we, he's a werewolf. But
3: we cut back to Stephen Hawking's best friend from from university, and the guy looks like he's fifty. <laughs> he looks <laughs> he, he looks older than the professor. <laughs> I thought
0: that exactly the same thing. I thought exactly the same.
3: And then, so he makes a bit of a speech. It has one sort of semi, it was supposed to be a big sweeping speech. I didn't really get it about the, you know, humanity and hope and all this stuff. But it goes a standing ovation, which I don't think happens until you know he's leaving for the night. Maybe he said last question. I don't know. But that always happens.
2: I really liked that speech. Okay. I took quite a lot away from that. I thought that was a really lovely speech. I believe it's a real one um i think i've heard clips of it before uh i know i i really really liked it i think it spoke to a strength of what he's been through and him and also passing that on to everyone else
1: okay. Um i think the speech is really nice and i did like read it after watching the film again and thought thought it was a lovely sentiment but in how it's portrayed in the film just before that so between that and the previous questions you've got this bit where he picks the pen up from the floor and i think that was sort of distracting me from what he was actually saying at the time that
3: was weird what we think of that didn't like it uh, the, fantasy, a sequence.
0: the fantasy the fantasy worry
3: a... it gave, if some reason if, if, if you haven't seen the film why you listen to the podcast but in the case you haven't Stephen hawking sees a girl drop a pen very reminiscent to what he did early in the film when he was visiting the professor. And uh, he imagines himself getting up out of the chair and just walking over quite normally and then grabbing the pen and giving it to the lady. And then we cut back to him still in the chair.
0: Did you notice it was a kind of a, a Kaiser Sose moment?
3: Yeah, in the sense that he kind of shook off his thing. Yeah. 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 Let's just leave that there in case we ever do that one before too long, Liam. Absolutely. Then we cut back to England and Jonathan and Jane are very happily living together. And there's a letter from Stephen. and We don't know what it is. And then we cut to Buckingham Palace. He's getting, not a knighthood, but he's getting like an order of the British Empire or something from, from the Queen.
0: Was it an MBE or something?
3: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. OBE, OBE, yeah. OBE, yeah. Officer of the British Empire? Is that what it is?
1: So I don't
2: like know, but order, I believe I it's
3: OBE. Order. order of the British Empire, yeah. And so they go in there, and he's invited Jane to be there as his companion. As There's as Mr. and Mrs. Hawking, but in they go as, and they're kind of playing it up for whatever, and then we cut to them outside, and she thanks him for everything. And they talk about how their life has been extraordinary. And the last line by Stephen Hawking is, look at what we made. And it's a shot oh. of the children as we oh. then fade out. I fell,
0: I fell a bit. I felt to bits. Because if he said that, I thought that was amazing how he's thought of all these different things about the universe. And the one thing he's proud of is the one thing he created himself.
3: That's interesting. Or the idea about, you know, I was looking for a simple equation that would f- solve the mysteries of the universe and maybe it was relationships that solved the mysteries of his universe. I don't know. Maybe. So, and then it, we get a couple of chirons at the end that tell us that Jane and Jonathan were married, that Jane and Stephen are still good friends, it's their grandchildren, da-da-da-da-da. And we kind of leave things there. What they don't tell you is, and again, remember when I said remember the source? What they don't tell you is that Stephen marries Elaine. Yes. Oh, I yeah. And, and it they, seems very I strange you wouldn't include that. Yeah, because it just a at, at the graph at the end, you know, whatever are married, uh, Stephen would would marry Elaine. They they happily spend their time between Cambridge and the United States, and then you can go with Jane and Stephen are still friends, and you know. Uh, often dote on their grandchildren together or whatever it was yeah
2: that's very yeah, strange that I- that's not included
3: yeah so i think again you have to look at the source because it seems like jane hawking was very like he had to convince her the the a- andrew McCarthen, i think I his name right anthony M- M- McCarthen, who wrote the screenplay had to convince her for three years and this might have been part of a thing i mean she otherwise it just seems weird why would you not include this about the the, the subject of the film
1: so uh, apparently um he and elaine were married for 10 years um and then that fell apart and it was after that period of time that um stephen and jane repaired their relationship oh okay so it sort of
3: so it was a great she deal was of time.
1: That, yeah so she was that wedge between their their relationship so perhaps if it's jane's memoirs are kind of dictating how the film goes then yeah. she perhaps didn't want that to be focused on because she didn't want that marriage to be celebrated maybe
2: also if um, Stephen and Elaine have then broken up since the film came out it's not necessarily a piece of information that's needed is it I mean it, it could be added in but then you've got to add they were in a relationship for this long and then it, they broke up yeah. and now yeah. they are
1: friends again like it's a little bit that's not necessary really
3: well, married though
1: it may also be that they didn't part terms on part ways on such good terms Stephen and Elaine yeah so it might be a bit of a mar on the film.
3: So just a couple of more facts on the way out and then or little bits to talk about and then we can talk about big picture stuff. Um the film was not shot chronologically and so depending on what time frame they were shooting that day think about the challenge that that would have meant for wow. Eddie Redmayne about you know it wasn't just he was purposely
2: insane. So what
3: day he had a chart what day is it or like what part of the thing is it and then what would Stephen Hawking's uh, um problem have been at that point what would be the the impact of his disease at that point in his life
1: that just makes his acting in this film even more impressive
3: uh it said that at the um at the debut at the Toronto International Film Festival where Stephen Hawking was a guest in the crowd that a nurse had to wipe away a tear from his cheek after it was over which made Anthony McCartan say that was if that was all it ever got that was it for him he was happy to have said that Hawking also said there are passages where Redmayne is so convincing he forgot it was an actor and not just a lateral portrayal of his life on the screen. <laughs> and not to let's not uh, throw away Felicity Jones here. Uh, Jane, the real Jane Hawking was impressed with Felicity Jones. Uh, so was I. Especially the way that she picked up Jane's very authentic mannerisms and speech patterns.
1: Do we know whether Eddie Redmayne spent a lot? Like whether Stephen Hawking actually collaborated with the film at all.
3: He had, uh, Eddie Redmayne had a conversation with Stephen Hawking for a number of hours, but he said that Hawking only said like four sentences during the whole meeting. Wow. So uh, he said he was very funny when he did speak, but it was very, very limited. So this is much more a Jane Hawking piece than it is a Stephen Hawking yeah. collaboration.
1: I suppose he's able. he was able to watch the um, recordings and things of how Stephen Hawking actually you know, yeah. moved and things
3: like he, that. Okay. It said he was okay with it and it seems like he was okay with it because one thing Jane Hawking has slightly kind of gone against is that it said Stephen Hawking was actually much more stubborn and difficult to live with than is shown in the film. And there is the idea that at least how she, from, from, from her version of it, it seemed like much more like Stephen was very difficult to live with and there were less sweet moments than we saw on the screen and much more of a difficult ones.
0: Yeah, I but, can understand that.
3: But if the film's based around the star power of Stephen Hawking, we don't want to go see a disabled man um, presented uh, in such a... Especially a guy who's like a, a cultural hero. It would be very difficult to do a movie where he's where he's presented as like almost villainous in character at times. What do you think about that, Georgia?
2: I think you're completely right. I don't think the film does as well. I don't think it gets an audience if portrayed as any anyone is portrayed as being the bad guy in it um I don't think that's what the story is about I don't think that's the message of his life at all um and I don't think it should be a look back on all of the negative things because if it's especially if it's done from one side's point of view because if you get a lot of negative Stephen vibes then and nothing from Jane because it's written from her point of view then you're going to get a skewed a view of reality and you might Take sides on it. Whereas, if you both see them both as very good people, one it makes a better film, and two, it's not then one-sided either way.
1: I thought it was really nicely balanced.
0: Yeah,
2: I think it could it could have gone differently if, like you were saying, he was portrayed as more accurate. I don't think it would have been a nice balance then.
3: And that's accurate only by based off of Jane hawking's memoir. Really, I think we have to make sure that we know that you'd have to be inside the house to really know. So as yeah. far as far as the materials available to us, we do what we and do. And to be
0: fair, she was quite kind to him yeah. in the
3: film. Yeah. And how he was portrayed. I was glad to see she got her PhD. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I did have a plan where I was going to ask about Elaine or um Elaine or Jane. Who did we feel during that moment, who were we sort of on? If we had to team it up, are we on Team Jane? Are we on Team Elaine? It's a little bit more difficult to say now that kind of you know, we 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 find out now that Stephen and, and her marriage didn't uh, last. Um,
0: Jane was there from the beginning. So I'd be more team Jane anyway, even if Elaine and him were still together.
3: But by him being with, let, let's look at it this way. Him being with Elaine opened up the door for Jane to end up with Jonathan. And not end yeah. up with him in some little you know you can go camping with the kids and sneak into his tent but to end up with him
1: i think yeah
0: okay
3: i think yeah.
1: elaine's entrance into his life gives everybody the courage to move on and do what's best for the ha- their happiness all around mm-hmm. so i wouldn't say that um elaine and jane are necessarily different teams it's more kind of team Stephen and team happiness
3: i guess it's just the yeah. idea about different people for different seasons in in your life there was a time when yeah. it was him and jane and that was a time when it's him and elaine and uh yeah and elaine was
0: definitely not a villain in this at all
3: oh i don't think i think she brings some life back to him when he needs it she the does. most yeah. he is at his lowest so she and gets him tell me when jane isn't holding up that spelling board that she has nothing left in the tank
0: yeah
3: yeah you know what i mean she does That's not have it in her
0: tank. yeah
3: like she was begging for help on the way to Bordeaux, like she didn't have it for when he's at Z- when when he's got to come all the way back.
1: Yeah, yeah. definitely. And also, I love Maxine Peake.
3: Is that who was playing it?
1: Uh, Elaine. Yeah. Oh, excellent. She's fantastic excellent. actress.
3: So uh, maybe let's go ahead and ask the uh, the big sort of questions. I didn't do uh, the the age game on this one because we've gone for a fair bit. But let's talk about uh, best roles ever. Or things. Like, I, I mean. Uh, <sighs> Georgia, I mean, you and I kind of had a conversation at the end of the last podcast. We're talking about Eddie Redmayne, and you know, I said I've never really been impressed with a thing Eddie Redmayne has ever done. Eddie Redmayne was actually courted for this role. They that the, he didn't really audition so much as they they chased after him to do it. And okay. I gotta say, I I'm gonna stand here, hand on heart, and go, Eddie Redmayne, pro- prove me wrong. I uh, thought he was absolutely. fantastic. I think in that. Well.
2: During that conversation that we were having, I said, um, no, I don't think I'd ever seen anything where his acting had ever completely blown me away. I just liked him as a person. Um, But no, this completely made me go, oh my goodness. Because not only is he doing a good portrayal of a part, he's also doing a wonderful portrayal of someone going downhill with a physical disability. Walking like that couldn't, couldn't have been easy. Portraying things like that is incredibly hard both mentally and physically and i think he's done such a wonderful job
3: now he and felicity jones is the second time they've played sort of in a show together or in a, or in a thing together and they're both i think at cambridge because actually um, eddie redmayne goes to cambridge as well in real life mm-hmm. and so apparently he and felicity jones were in a production of comedy of errors together so if you think about the difference between her experience with eddie redmayne and both of those things one with these wonderful great moments of dialogue and and witty (laughs) repartee and the second one being yeah you get the the fun parts with eddie redmayne in the first 20 minutes but then how much of the acting is just physical and reacting to things and showing the struggle
1: i think that's what makes his performance in this so good as well because he hasn't got the words to fall back on and it's Just such an emotive bit of acting throughout and so varied. And you've absolutely blown my mind with that concept of it wasn't done chronologically as well. I think that just really shows his strength as an actor.
3: Liam, your thoughts on Eddie Redmayne, buddy?
0: Yeah, I thought, again, like Stephen Hawking himself, I forgot I was watching Eddie Redmayne uh, halfway through because he was so phenomenal. I'm not a fan of Eddie Redmayne, but this part, he did brilliantly
3: i guess i think it's even harder to do when it's a biopic because you're like you know who they're supposed to be presenting as right like
1: yeah and it's not even like an it's not even like a um a kind of past it person i can't think of the word i'm trying to it's not like it's someone that's been dead for 100 years and no one really knows what they're they're like it's someone that's literally in front of us i mean not anymore sadly but at the time was still very present
3: we all watched Rocket Man together and when I saw that I mean as good as it was I didn't forget for a moment that I was watching Taron Egerton playing Elton John he was too pretty to be Elton John it was that it was (laughs) the idea where I kind of just went you're doing a really good job you are you are but I'm I'm never suspending my disbelief and going this is Elton Uh, unlike Rami Malek in uh, We Will Rock You and definitely obviously unlike Stephen Hawking in, in, in this and I think that's the level. I mean, if you can say, man, that guy's doing a really good job acting this, that's one level. But when you forget who they are and go – and you just become that engrossed that they are that person, that's, that, a, yeah. that's, that's a whole nother level. Yeah. I mean – Absolutely. I
0: agree.
1: Yeah. I mean, we watched um, Les Miserables the, just a couple of weeks ago, um, Ian and I, and – He was I terrible. Can... <laughs> it's not his, not his best he performance. he is bad in <laughs> um, Yeah. But I mean, that didn't even enter my mind when I was watching The Theory of Everything.
3: No. Or, uh, Georgia, what's his name in the Harry Potter universe?
2: Newt Scamander.
3: Newt Scamander. So, yeah. I mean, I and he was a villain in some movie of a little while. I forget who he was, but he wasn't very good.
1: Um, I mean, I've just been looking through his, his past works, and I've realized the first time I ever saw him in anything, it was in a TV adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles with, um, is it Gemma Arterton?
3: Sure. Is that- I don't know who that yeah. is, but I'll um, believe you. In
1: two thousand and eight. Uh, she's in I think it's Quantum of Solace as well, in the oh, okay. James Bond film. Um but yes yeah, so it was it's quite a long time ago. Um but what I would be quite interested to see is um the Danish girl that he did in two thousand and fifteen.
0: Okay. I hate yeah. that movie.
1: I would, would like to see that,
2: especially having seen him in this. Okay.
0: Yeah. I hated that movie and I thought his character in that movie was diabolical. Sorry. So- hated it.
3: So we didn't play this game at the start, but maybe he's going to, to do it now. What do we think the IMDb rating for this was? Uh, 9.2. Nine point. That's higher than The Dark Knight. You know that, right? Yeah. The Dark Knight was 9. Okay, great. Georgia? Uh,
2: 8.7.
3: 8.7. The answer is actually, as he looks in his book here, 7.7. Really? Now, okay. This was nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Picture. What do we think the Rotten Tomato score was?
2: It's got to be high. I'm thinking either late 80s or early 90s. Okay. Uh, 93? 93,
3: Leo? 93 as yeah. 93 93. well? 77%. What? Wow. Which is nuts. So under the usual criteria, we usually wouldn't consider this film, but it's because he won Best Actor, and she got nominated for Best Actress, and maybe that's a good time now to move on. Felicity Jones, uh, I think she was really, really good in this. So good. Phenomenal. Now, but the difference is we don't know, unlike Stephen Hawking, where we get to look at Eddie Redmayne and go, oh, he's nailed that. Felicity Jones, you don't really have that ability because we don't know who Jane Hawking is. Why would we? So, no. but I thought she did such a good job of... And she's different people at different points in her life. At the start, it's, it's wide-eyed, youthful optimism. In the midpoints, you see dedication And at the end there, when she's fighting back with tears in her eyes, it's it's that it's despair. But I'm going to keep pressing on despite this, even though we all know she's got nothing left. I thought she was great.
0: You know how we did an
2: amazing job.
0: You know how we discussed in the Dark Knight how Gary Oldman was phenomenal in his part. She was that part in this. See, I didn't phenomenal.
3: I didn't realize I'd seen her in something before. I had no idea, but I have seen her in something before. Which was. She was in. She was the lead character Liam in Rogue One. Of course, and I couldn't believe that.
0: Oh, that was doing my head in. I was trying to figure out who she was.
3: Yeah, because we I saw that together and didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> um, but she was
0: great in this.
1: Have you guys not seen Inferno?
3: No, I haven't seen Inferno. Oh, okay. Is this, this the is... like Dan Brown book? Yeah. No, I haven't. Um, wait, Infer- no, that's that's the a third, third one. No, I haven't third seen
1: that one. one. Yeah. Um. So she she plays one of the lead characters in that as well. Okay. Um, I think she's good in it, but the film definitely hasn't got very good no, reviews.
3: If we say who is the best character or who is our favorite character, I, I, I well, Liam, you 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 did say you said jo- even more so than uh, than Stephen Hawking. You said you said Jonathan yeah, was your I, favorite.
0: I think because Jonathan is more like me. Okay. Uh, part of my character is more like Jonathan. Okay. So I relate to him more. You know how you when you watch something, you relate to people who. You relate
3: to absolutely, so absolutely. I,
0: I relate to him more uh, than any other character. So yeah, I
3: like Jonathan. Uh, Georgia, any other characters beside the the big two, or you want to just sing someone else's praise no, again for more? No,
2: I think I think it's going to go to Eddie Redmayne. I was completely blown away by his performance, and um, and I think in any other film there would have been several other standout performances, but because he does such a good job and it's such an I- iconic person that he is portraying it's kind of hard to look past that and see other people doing a good job as well.
3: Oh, no, I disagree. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's fine. Eddie? Uh, Eddie. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> Ellie?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, definitely Jane was the the best character for me, but I did enjoy the character of Brian as well. Okay.
3: I'm going to go off the board a bit. I really liked the two of them and a half of the... A character who I'm glad we got to see again. I'll put it this way. I really am glad we got to see Professor Dennis again. Um, Inspector Ghoul from the crappy BBC remake of Inspector Calls. And whatever. Remus Lupin, I think his name is, from Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. I really thought he was good in that way that he discounted Stephen Hawking. And, and I don't know. I'm I'm a teacher. And I think there's those, those kids. But there's certain ones that you might go, oh, you could be so good if you just sort of gave it a shot. And to see him... And and that movement as well, I think, um, where he goes from seeing Stephen as a uh, lazy student to seeing him as a brilliant prodigy to seeing him as a uh, a colleague and then later on as a friend. And I thought that in the hands of a lesser actor, that would be a real easy to just mail in sort of role. And I felt he actually made something of that. Something more than yeah, it now was. Yeah,
2: you've, now you've said that. I've gone, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, other than the big ones, he is definitely one that I thought did a brilliant job. And he made me smile when he came back on the screen, yeah. which I think is something that's quite important in a film that carries some very heavy subjects. Even if he wasn't necessarily a comedic character, he brought, brought a warmth yeah, to there's a warmth. What was going on that I really appreciated.
3: And at moments, that was this film's greatest um, attribute, I think, was it had moments of warmth. And that's really, really hard to achieve.
0: Can I just say also, um, I know that's focused more on Stephen Hawking going through his life. But for me, this film was about two love stories.
3: Yeah, I would just say, is it three? It's not three, it's two.
0: It's two love stories. It's two, yeah. That's what spoke to me, the two love stories.
3: Yeah, Uh, because it would be really easy, and I think it's the way the marketing went, and obviously you have to market the movie this way, but the movie was marketed around the love story between Stephen Hawking and Jane Hawking. But I think you became equally, and, and they set it up so that when they ended up together, you were okay with it. Yeah. And it's important. Now, consider the source, again. But but I still think that's important, that when they get there, we're okay with seeing the two of them end up together and that closeness exactly, that they have. yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. But you're on their side from day one. Pardon me? you can understand the – when Jonathan first comes into the picture, you can understand it from day one.
3: It could have been really easy to write that character as like like a one-dimensional kind of – it could have been very different, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it was yeah. very multifaceted and nuanced and um, considered the gray Yeah. in the situation. Um, so with that in mind, uh, basically we're just left with our ratings to do. So uh, if no one's thought of it, I'm going to ask you to take a couple of seconds here and rattle around in your brain. Uh, Liam, reminder to you that you and I do this on a half point scale half point scale Uh, Georgia and Ellie uh, you kind of have you are like Stephen Hawking there are no limits in your universe so (laughs) feel free to go ahead and break the system however you want but we do use you guys in the form of tiebreakers if we need to so uh, is anybody uh, let's start Ellie do you have one
1: yeah well mm, I think I think so um I really enjoyed the film um I think just just thinking back to how I've rated other things, I definitely uh would rate it sort of above Amelie and um in Bruges and things like that. So definitely at least an eight. Um I'm thinking probably an eight point two five if I'm allowed to be a little bit cheeky and go well, between you, the half points. You yeah. and Georgia,
3: like I said, there are no limits, so yeah. This is not a black hole, it's not gonna collapse in on itself. You can you can do whatever you want. So eight point two five, Georgia.
2: Um I'm struggling. Kind of go back through and place it amongst what we've already done because I did enjoy this. Um, it didn't make me cry or anything. I don't think I was invested enough in it. I don't know whether that's my watching environment. Like I've said, I've had to right. put subtitles on because I haven't been able to hear too well. Um, I think, although I didn't write many notes, which means at least in the last half of it, I was paying attention and not necessarily stopping it to write notes and that kind of thing. Um, I would give it a 7.8. 7.8. Okay. Okay.
3: Uh Liam.
0: Well, my first watch of this and I didn't want to watch the film in the day, but when I did watch it, it surprised me. Um second time round, I loved it more. I cried a lot mainly for the love stories.
3: Okay.
0: Um but my rating is an 8.
3: An 8. Okay. Uh I went ahead and I was thinking about this pretty hard because it was the first time I've seen this. And what I can do sometimes is I think I do the opposite of you, Liam. Uh, I, I tend to rate things higher, I think, on the first viewing than on the second. I think on the second I start to see the cracks a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and so – I'm gonna go ahead with what I kind of went with, and then we'll, I think we're gonna have to look at our tiebreakers for the first time in our in our lineup here. Because Liam, I'm gonna give it an eight and a half. Ooh. I I bought into the story on a small scale. If you can tell, if you can call fifty years as someone's life or whatever it was, a small scale. Yeah, but uh, I'm definitely gonna go ahead with that because it was about a limited number of characters I was supposed to care about. It was Stephen and Jane Hawking's story. Everybody else. Kind of be damned, and if I may dare to say so, I think it is more Jane Hawking's story than Stephen Hawking's story.
1: I agree,
3: yeah, I agree. Georgia, you want to make it a clean sweep, or
2: um, yeah, I think I hadn't really thought about it until obviously we started talking about it in that light, but um, yeah, if you take a step back and think about it, I'd agree with that. I think, like I said earlier, though, um, Eddie Redmayne does such a good job. He does. as Stephen Hawking, that you struggle to look past that on just a cursory glance. But no, I would agree with a more in-depth look at
3: it. And it's really interesting because that puts in a Italian in our rankings with Imbruges. Ooh. Which is interesting because, I mean, they're two very different films. They yeah. are. Uh, Bruges was a very, very cleverly written script. I don't think this was. I don't think... Theory Everything is, is a great script. It wasn't nominated for Best Screenplay, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think it was that great. But you had two acting powerhouse performances in the two lead roles. Yeah. Which, I mean, in Bruges, Colin Farrell's very good. I don't think you have to go to the depth of what we've seen here. So no, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of okay with that. With the tiebreakers that uh, Georgia and Ellie have given us, it will pop just ahead in the rankings, technically, of in Bruges.
0: I believe that And I'm okay Are with you that. Quite a- I'm, I'm good with
3: that. If you told me they're really, really close, but um, Theory Everything just pips it, I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, I'm good with that too.
3: So that is that for best film ever. We just have to find out what next film ever is as Georgia gets ready to let us know, it was her pick, what next film ever will be. Uh, Liam, we have a special guest joining us in two weeks time to do a review.
0: And who will that be?
3: That'll be our friend Debbie is going to come review a film with us. Yay. Yay! I don't know what she's going to pick I've kind of left that as a possibility with her I've kind of given her an idea of kind of like a short list um, She might want to do something she's seen She might want to do something she hasn't seen And because I haven't had a chance to sort of chase that up yet We're going to make that two weeks from today <laughs> Rather than <laughs> pausing on that So Georgia Very uh, helpfully anyway Was, was on deck to, to pick a movie So Georgia, why don't you tell us all Because we don't know What are we watching next week?
2: Well. Wow. I decided that we had watched quite a few serious, quite a few action-packed, little bit gritty films in the last uh, last few run. I wanted to go with something that's not necessarily mainstream, but still a little bit more uh, a little bit more cutesy, a little bit more well, a little bit less guns and violence and serious neurological conditions, um, and a little more fantasy. Okay. So I picked a film that, despite Conversations we had had earlier in the week that you said something about it, and I went, Oh, well, that's the film I'd already picked, but never mind. I'm still running with it. We're going to watch The Princess Bride. Hey,
3: Princess Bride. I've never seen it. Oh, really? I'm so excited about this. I haven't
1: seen it either, Leo.
3: Oh, I've seen it like I've seen it a lot. I'll just say that much. I've seen it a lot, and it actually, uh, we talked about warmth, and I think what we've got lined up for next week, I think we'll be hearing that word plenty next week so i'm very and it's, it's it's kind of a short watch i think it's not a very long movie is it something i'd like yes
2: yes you will uh, love it liam. I, well
3: that's my prediction yeah you have to tune in next week to find out for sure if i was right i, 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 bet, <laughs> I bet you i am i'm
1: so glad that you said that you've never seen it liam because i thought i was the only person in the world that had never seen the princess bride so yeah be good
3: no nah, i think it'll be it'll be very interesting because we've seen a lot of oscar Beatty type of films, and like Georgia said, we've seen a lot of gritty, gritty films, and uh, you know, edgy filmmaking, and this is the antithesis of all of that. So, please join us next week when we look at The Princess Bride, and for Best Film Ever, I've been Ian, and I've been Liam,
1: I've been Ellie, and I've been Georgia.
3: And guys, when I think of the last two hours and the podcast we've made, I just want to say, look what we made. Thanks a lot. See you next time.